What I like about planting and pastoring in a hard place. That's the question we're talking about today with Andy Constable, uh, one of the pastors at Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Glad uh, we're together. No problem at all. Um, Andy, uh, you and I met uh, last year. I had a chance to see Nidri and some of the other churches that have been planted by 20 Schemes. I've been looking forward to talking with you, and I'm eager for you to share some of your experience with um, with our listeners, and in particular with potential church planters. Would you tell us a little bit, but even before we get to that point, would you tell us about your own background, where you grew up, and uh, the thumbnail version of uh, the Andy Constable story? Yeah, sure. So, um, I was brought up in uh, London, in England, as you can tell, I haven't got a Scottish accent. Uh, I've been in Scotland 15 years, but not picked it up um, a little bit, one bit. So um, yeah, brought up in London, my family are believers, and um, they brought me up sharing the, go- sharing the gospel with me, and um, telling me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I was brought up going to church all my life, but it was at the age of 18 that I repented of my sins and, and put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I just remember um, a preacher coming along and um, just preaching from Isaiah chapter one about the people of Israel and how they had walked away from the Lord. Um, and yet uh, at the beginning of chapter one, it says, come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, let me make them. Uh, white as snow and um i just remember that really just striking me and just having a real conviction of sin and the need to turn from my sins and put my faith and trust in the lord jesus christ i was at the age of 18 i then um had a gap year in south america um in peru and ecuador serving with churches over there and then after that i went to edinburgh university to study did four years there and um, it was in my final year of studying that I began to hear about the work at Nidri Community Church. And I went out to see the church and the work and uh, met Mez and um, shortly after that became an, an intern there. Um, so that's a bit of personal background. Um, also, uh, along that way, I met my wife at university and been married for 10 years and got three kids. Isla's five, Isaac's three, and Ezra's one. Nice. Uh, let's talk about the uh, process of deciding to go to Nidri and um, take us from uh, where you just left off to um, deciding to uh, move into a pastoral position and in particular to move into as a family, to move into a scheme. In the process, I'm asking too many questions all at once. In the process, tell us what a scheme is. Yeah, oh, okay. I'll start with a scheme first. Um, so um, a housing scheme um, is maybe a, the best way I've heard it put in terms of American circles is a mixture of maybe like a trailer park and an Indian reservation and um, what you would call the projects in America. So originally they were places created in the 1960s after the Second World War to house the working class. Um, And they moved the whole uh, population of people from the city centre to the edges of the city centre to these areas called schemes. Um, And so they're made up of all sorts of people 
today. Um, but generally they're known as areas of, of deprivation and where the working class would, would live. Um, so that's a housing scheme. Um, in terms of decision to go into ministry in a housing scheme, uh, multiple factors kind of came into it. I think while I was a student, um, I think reading the New Testament and um, just seeing God's heart for the poor really stirred my heart. And I just was becoming, um, the word, I was just becoming um, uncomfortable just living in a kind of studenty bubble. And the Lord was stirring my heart to get out of my context and um, and and yeah, work in, in an area of poverty. Originally, um, I wanted to go to South Africa and minister there. And I did spend a year there after graduating before um, before moving to to Nidri permanently. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a gradual stirring my heart. I wanted to work with those who um, maybe were poorer in the world, maybe struggling with drink and drugs, maybe involved with prostitution or, or, or gang lifestyle and um, wanting to to do some sort of yeah Christian work. It wasn't at that point local church ministry, but any sort of Christian work in, in a poor area. So when I heard about the work in Nidri, and I jumped at it to go across and see what was going on. And, and that's when I, I said, as I said, when, when I met Nez and um, yeah, he offered me an internship and I moved in and the rest is history. You were married by that point, yes? Yeah, so I married straight after graduation and um, I spent six months living with Nez while I was engaged. Um, and then um, we got married and, and found a house in the housing scheme because one of the key things that we teach and think is important for any church planting is that you live in the area that you're ministering to and so we found a place uh, and the lord opened up somewhere for us to to live okay so at some point you're having a conversation with your wife and um maybe she was ahead of you maybe she was uh, not quite um at the same place as you were but at some point um you had to have some conversation that sounded something like, Hey, uh, honey, let's uh, move to uh, a neighborhood where uh, there's gang violence and, and drugs and poverty and crime. And uh, how about it? How, how did that conversation go? Yeah. So um, my wife um, was actually brought up on a council estate in England. So a council estate is the English equivalent equivalent of a, of a housing scheme. So her mum and dad had actually moved from suburbia. Uh, her dad was a lawyer, mum a teacher, but they had a heart to move into a council estate. And so she was brought up with that ministry on her heart. And um, yeah, she'd always wanted to marry someone who had the same heart and wanted to, to do the same ministry. So um, it wasn't so much of a conversation it was just we knew that's where we were going and we were on the same path and wanted to do the same thing so um yeah she never battered an eyelid <laughs> at that and was excited about it and and um has been the whole time so there's something in here that's interesting to me which is um it, it, we talk uh here at new church planting about missionaries planting churches not church planters. So, 
uh, we're looking not so much for a church planter. We're looking for a missionary who will plant a church. In other words, somebody that's uh, comfortable with the idea of uh, support raising, because uh, these churches, and we'll talk about this in a minute, these churches are largely not going to be financially self-sustaining. Um, and secondly, they're, they are for a lot of uh, potential church planters cross-cultural. And so that's missionary work. Um, and it sounds to me as though that happened for you. That had already happened for your wife um, growing up. She, she had this mentality that she wanted to be in that context. And you uh, were thinking about going to South Africa. So by the time you're presented with the option of pastoring in Nidri, you already have this mindset. Am, am I reading into it or is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already had, already had the mindset that I needed to, I wanted to cross, cross cultures. Um, I mean, originally the cross culture was, let me go across the seas to a completely different culture. But um, after now living in Nidri for 12 years, um, you come to see that the, there's a cross culture just from one side of the city to another, from suburbia to to a scheme, or from you know a middle class area to a project. Um, it might look slightly the same, even speak English, but the cultural outlook and worldview is very different um, in 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 a scheme compared to what I was brought up with in London and at university. Hmm. What are some of the uh, cultural traits, subcultural traits that are different? You mentioned a couple in your article. Um, let's talk about some of those traits that are different. Yeah, so um, I think um, the first thing that I'm, that I'm definitely struck with is just that collectivist um, community outlook on life. So whereas most of the West is individualized, um, in the schemes because families have lived here for decades and generations and they're not transient and they're fixed it means a community spirit um, um still exists here uh, which is great um and where people look out for each other where there's loyalty um where you see each other on a, on a regular basis. And yeah, one of the things that actually American missionaries particularly struggle with coming to a scheme um, and and yeah, middle-class Christians as well is that you're on top of each other the whole time. And it's like a goldfish bowl because the houses are a bit smaller and they've created the schemes in a certain, in a certain way in a small area. Um, and they crowd a lot of people into that area. And so, yeah, there's that, community collectivist outlook um a second kind of cultural trait that has been that i've observed is just um a black and white nature about things um people rather you be straight about something rather than the middle class cultural trait which is being polite to each other um so if you've got a problem with someone else so rather you not just be passive aggressive about it but actually let them know what's wrong or if you're conveying a truth about the gospel, don't soft soap it, but tell me as it is. And um, people put a lot, um, and put a great, a great prize on that to, to speak in a black and white, in a black and white manner, or just be upfront um, about things. So that would be a second 
cultural trait. A third one would be um, in terms of um, phenomenology, in terms of the religion of the schemes. It's a very spiritualistic worldview. Um, so you don't get many atheists in a scheme. Um, you don't get many saying, oh, I don't believe in Christianity because I've read you know, Charles Darwin on natural selection and I've decided that evolutionary biology disproves the existence of God. You're not having that kind of conversation um, in a scheme. People uh, generally believe there is a God, uh, very spiritualistic about things. So um, there's a whole business of the occult going on in schemes, spiritualist churches, witches' covens, um, all that kind of stuff, mediums coming around your house to speak to the dead. People are very interested in those things. Um, and yeah, an acceptance there is a God, et cetera, those kind of things. So although not a Christian worldview, um, a spiritualistic out, outlook that's different to kind of the naturalistic assumptions of um, kind of middle-class, university-educated culture. Um, so yeah, there's other ones, but those three. And then underlying it all is just a, 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 what I'd call a savage humour um, and that humor is there because um, in the difficulties of life, all you can do is laugh at things and laugh at each other. Um, and so when Americans come or even polite middle class Christians come and they see the savage nature of the, the banter, um, it takes them aback a little bit. But that's the way that people communicate with each other and shows friendship and acceptance as well. In there also is the issue of trust, and I think this came out in your article. It seems to me in my observation of ministry in the inner city for the last dozen years or so that as you move up the economic ladder, uh, trust goes down. As you move down uh, uh, down the economic ladder, there's an openness and a willingness to talk about um, the rawness and the pain and the suffering of life. Seems to me that if you're making a lot of money, then you can buy enough veneers uh, to hide your sin and your your suffering inside, and uh, that's not the case in the inner city, as we talk about it in the in the U.S. or in the schemes. Do, do you agree? And um, how do you feel about that in pastoring? Yeah, I would um, definitely agree with that. I mean, uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again: that the only difference between the rich and the poor is that the rich can cover their sin. Um, as you said, uh, with money, with a flash house, flash cars, psychiatrists, maybe they're paying for for their mental health, all of the pills. Um, and again, you are trying to trick everyone else that you're happy and everything's going well in your life. Um, you're putting on a performance. Now, of course, that happens all over in poor and rich places. You know, people don't want to say everything about them, but um, there is a more... Yeah, a general openness to communicate what's really going on in their lives. So if you ask someone how they're doing in the scheme, um, particularly our new Christians, they're going to tell you everything. <laughs> and I mean everything. Like they're going to go right down to the details of mental things they're thinking and even sexually transmitted diseases they're carrying around or whatever. Like there's, they're not hiding it. <laughs> they're happy to talk through that. Um, but at the same time, um, it does take effort and time for a cultural outsider to build that trust with someone. Um, but once you have it, 
once you have that trust with someone, people will be loyal to you and they will communicate their deepest and darkest thoughts to you because they trust you. Uh, that takes time. Um, but yeah, once you have that trust, um, you know, people are very loyal to you. And if you break that trust, then you can obviously break that indefinitely for, I think you'll be very careful about what you share with others and yeah, your loyalty to them as well. That can be very difficult. Hmm. That's a real blessing to a pastor though, that kind of uh, loyalty and trust. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Andy, in the, in the U S um, the, a church planter often will follow a trajectory that begins with uh, being supported by a church planting agency. And that agency may give uh, the church planter three years worth of um, support, which would taper off toward the end of those three years. If, uh, if that pastor is worth his salt, then he's going to have a church that can support him in the church programs by the end of that three, four years, maybe depends on where it is in the U.S., um, in, in poorer communities, churches are rarely, if ever, financially self-sustaining. We don't even expect that as we talk about church planting among the urban poor. How does it work in Nidri? Um, how does it uh, work with other churches that are being planted by 20 schemes? And in fact, uh, just yesterday, as you and I were talking before we um, started this podcast, uh, a new church was born there not too far away from Nidri. So how, how does this work financially for your churches? Yeah, so... Oh, um, so Nidri is very blessed in, in and of itself um, because uh, when the church was being revitalized about 14 years ago, um, a city center church called Charlotte Chapel hived off some of their members to come and help out the church plant. And so it gave um, the strength of that move was that it gave the, the church plant a, um, an economic backbone, if you want put it that way, um, a funding stream because members were working and giving into the offering and were very generous and have and are still to this day to support um, the work on the ground. Um, so from the membership, we're able to pay one full-time pastor, um, a cafe manager slash outreach worker and uh, a youth worker as well. Um, which is which is quite good for a small church of what are we now 60 70 members um so very generous from from those um from those men and women who who work hard in the background and are the unsung heroes really of our church plant revitalization um the problem that you get when you're planting a church in a inner city area is that you don't always have that financial backbone um you might we try and encourage the planters to gather a mixed team and um, before they launch of, you know, what you would call more mature Christians um, and then maybe newer Christians from the scheme or from out with who are cultural insiders. But if you've only got 20 members and only half of them work, it's not going to be enough to to be to support the salary of, of the planter. Um, on a on a month by month basis, and so that planter is then forced to 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 get funding from outside of the the plant itself to be self sustaining. Um, I know that different plants um, planting strategies have included bivocational planting, uh, where the the pastor you know does a side tent making business and pastor the church at the same time, but. Um, 
in the context of a scheme that is very, very difficult to do the two things at the same time, as well as looking after your family. And so we encourage our planters to fundraise out with and to focus wholeheartedly on the on the plant in front of them so they don't face burnout uh, and they can really do the work they need to do in in um, raising up the church and uh, and reaching out to the scheme. And then the problem you get, you're getting is that, you know, in the first five years, you're not working with students or or, or post-grads or, you know, converting doctors, lawyers, people with a lot of money that can, you know, float the church in a couple of years. You're, you're seeing converts maybe who have been on drugs their whole lives and have lived on the welfare state or are working in menial jobs, um, cleaning or working at McDonald's or whatever, and they will sacrificially give, but it's not going to be enough again to to fund the running of of the of the plant itself uh, and so that's why we say don't just fundraise for three years or don't just fund us for three years fund us for a decade um and get behind us and we'll try our best to to fund ourselves and we want to see the church grow but it's going to be slow slowly moving forward rather than exponential growth uh, and you know we're not doing a mega church model where you camp out in the middle of somewhere and and look to gather a church from all over the city um, and, you know, centre it around an amazing award-winning personality. Um, it's just going to be normal guy, men and women, planting churches and seeking to reach just their immediate scheme for Christ. Um, and so that's going to be a long-term project. Uh, at the end of the day, all we're expecting in the next, let's say, 30 years is that all over Scotland there'll be these small gospel-centered churches with stable leadership reaching out to their schemes, um, maybe 50 to 60 members just being faithful in, in their areas and seeing change happen from the bottom up. So you need to think long-term and not just short-term in terms of fundraising. We agree with you about uh, bivocational pastoring. Also, the, the stresses on an inner-city uh, pastor are, are huge. And um, being sustainable as a church and as a pastor and as a father and a husband mm, is really definitely. critical. And uh, so we encourage all sorts of income streams, but not bivocationalism. Mm. And uh, so, uh, so your comments are interesting. Two more things before we finish. Uh, tell us some stories. The, the question uh, that I put before you was, uh, what do you like about uh, pastoring in a hard place. And as you wrote, a number of stories just poured out on paper for you as you were um, answering that question. Tell us uh, some of the encouraging stories of pastoring individuals in a hard place. Yeah, um, I think um, just firstly, riding off the back of um, just the culture of the scheme, just the community um, once you're accepted, and particularly when you start seeing new Christians uh, in the scheme, it's an amazing the support that you have as a as a pastor, and f- um, friendships that we have within our community. Like um, we, me and my wife, for example, can go out for dinner, and we have three or four young ladies in the church who we can call upon to babysit, and who are children would call their aunties um, and um, who they love and they love them as well. And just having that support, um, you know, in the community is amazing. Um, You know, in lockdown, 
there were struggles and issues and problems, obviously, and particularly the height of lockdown when everything was shut off from each other in Scotland, particularly. But as we've come out of that, just the ability to see each other um, because we live near each other is amazing and uh, to go on walks, hang out in the garden, all that kind of stuff, which you, you can't do as readily when you're in a gathered church um, and when you're spread out across the city. So yeah, I love the community. So that'll be one ex one, um, one aspect. I mean, the second aspect is just seeing, as I put it in the article, prodigals coming home. Uh, I readily accept that every testimony is a supernatural work of grace. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian family or, or not a Christian family, but just to see, you know, someone who has squandered everything and um, comes into the church doors broken uh, by life and their own sin and seeing them converted by the power of the gospel is um, just amazing to see. So let me give you a couple of stories. Um, I, I named one in the, the article, but Natasha would be one. Uh, one story that always encourages me when I'm feeling discouraged and just the way that as a, a young child, um, she would she would come into the building to the youth ministries and just cause a whole lot of problems, would be chucked out of um, um, of the programs that we were running. Um, you know, her family, um, lovely family, but lots of different struggles in, in the background. Um, and she would say it herself, she was struggling with depression. She was battling with alcoholism. Um, and she was just lost in the world. Um, and then she came through our doors, um, began to interact with the gospel. And then one Easter got converted. And um, from being the person chucked out of the youth clubs, she is now the person running the youth clubs and getting alongside the young people in our community. And you would not believe the difference unless you knew her uh, that the Lord Jesus has made in her life in the last six, seven years and the effect that's had on her family and her friends. And this community is massive because she was well-known. She'd brought up here. She went to school here. Um, she knows all the families. And so, um, yeah, it's had a massive impact on our community. The second story is about um, a lady called Charlene, um, she is. She was a heroin addict in our community. Um, she, in fact, was used to sell heroin at the back of the church um, to to make ends meet and to fuel her own drug um, her drug problem. She started coming to the cafe, and Sharon Dickens, who's one of our women's workers, got alongside her, uh, began to read the gospel with her, um, took her through a course called "The Road: a Stranger on the Road to Emmaus." which is a biblical theology going through the whole of the Bible um, and looking at, um, you know, how Christ is found in the Old Testament and the New. And it was through that course and through Sharon's witness that she got converted. Um, and she went from selling heroin at the back of the church, um, you know, again, broken and lost in the world to having her life changed completely by the gospel. There were hiccups along the way in struggles in the first couple of years. Um, but it's been so encouraging to see the change that's made in her life. She's now uh, married to another member of the church. They have a really stable marriage. She now is learning. She's now working with those 
uh, working with an organization that works with people who have learning difficulties and from sucking the life out of society she's now giving back um and is um just a stable and godly member of our of our church now um and I, that again has had an impact on her family um she had two two children from a, a previous relationship and and um you know she's a different mum now than she was before that's really encouraging um the third third story is about um, a guy called stevie stevie came to my office one Friday afternoon, drunk. Um, and he just sat down on my desk and he said to me, I've tried everything, Andy. I've tried AA, I've tried NA. I've been to um, a secular rehab, but nothing's worked. I'm still stuck in the cycle of addiction I was when I started when I was 10 years old and he was now in his thirties. Nothing seems to work. so. We had a conversation. I'm not sure how much he took in because he was um, um, still still had a few drinks in him. But I just shared with him that uh, you know the gospel of AA is not the gospel of the Bible, um, and in fact, what they share in their ideology is a god of your own making, not the god of the Bible, and that you need a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went away from there. I didn't think I'd see him again. I said, "Come back and see me tomorrow." And he came back to see me. He started to attend Bible studies. And a few months later, um, he got converted. Um, and he went from being a town drunk, that's what he was known as, um, to um, um, a man who is following the Lord and is now working um, for the council, the local council, doing the bins and doing his own odd job business as well in the backdrop. And again, has been ups and downs since he got converted and he'll tell you that himself um, but he's moving forward with the lord and that's had an impact to, or again in our community and those those around him so yeah they're, they're, they're the, there's other encouragements other stories we uh, don't have all day to, to go through them all but um it's just seeing those men and women just seeing where they are when they come in seeing that they are lost without hope as paul puts it and um struggling in life and you can see it in their faces they've been battered by the drink they've been battered by the drugs they've tried antipsychotics they've tried antidepressants and they've tried every medication under the sun and it's in fact an encounter with the lord jesus christ that changed their lives um and they're going from depression to to joy um and from anxiety to peace from addiction to freedom and those those stories always encourage me uh, and also keep me going in the ministry and then just on top of that, I said in the article as well, just a discipleship, um, the general discipleship, just seeing men and women grow in godliness. Not as we know, it's progressive sanctification. No one's perfect after they get converted. Um, but just seeing, and this is where a local church is so important compared to a power church organization, because it's a local church that's going to be there for the next century, not just the next year while they have money to do the soup kitchen. And just seeing men and women being discipled grow in the Lord and persevere because that's the hard thing isn't it it's easy to say I'm going to follow Jesus it's harder to persevere through suffering through difficulties and particularly for addicts because all they've known when they've gone through suffering is to run to addictions um, and so now teaching these guys when you're under pressure don't run back to the idols of your old lives but run back to uh, run back to the Lord abide in his word uh, and persevere to the end and so yeah those 
those stories always encourage me. Hmm. There's good wisdom here, Andy. What do you want to say to a guy who's considering pastoring in a hard place? Last question. Yeah. Uh, firstly, go for it. <laughs> we need more men and women in the harder places of the world. Um, I think that a lot of the church planting has been put into, has been focused on university students and richer areas. And yeah, uh, we need to think, rethink where our resources are going in terms of funding people to go into poor areas. So yeah, go for it. But um, at the same time, know that there's going to be toils and snares and struggles along along the way. And so if you're planting, make sure you plant not with just by yourself, but with a team. Have godly men and women around you before you before you go into that place because you will need that camaraderie um in the battles of of that you're gonna face and the spiritual attack that you're gonna come against in in the in the harder places, particularly planting in a hard place. So go for it, but but have a team. Um, no, it's going to be difficult and hard as any planting is and revitalization. And know that it's not going to be a short-term project. You need to commit this one to life. Um, as the old missionaries used to do, they used to carry their coffins with them, didn't they, to the to where they went. And in the same way, we need to carry our coffins to the schemes and the hard places and the projects because it's going to take that long to establish healthy churches in, in these areas. So don't get out of your mind a quick fix and more think long-term. We've been talking to Andy Constable, one of the pastors at Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland. Andy, it's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you for the wisdom you've poured out. Thank you for your example. Thanks for encouraging us uh, with stories. And uh, thanks for making time to talk to us today. Once uh, travel restrictions uh, are lifted, I look forward to seeing you face-to-face in Edinburgh. Yeah, definitely. You're welcome anytime. Great. Thanks a lot, Andy. No worries. Thanks for having me.